Hello and welcome to another edition of Critical Q&A, the show where I answer your questions based on what you have sent me by email at askchrisshelton at gmail.com. Don't be bashful about sending those questions in to askchrisshelton at gmail.com. All right, if you leave them in the comment section, I might or might not see them, but I probably won't be putting them in my queue like I used to, so you have to email them to me. All right. Um, really good podcast this week. If you guys have not checked it out, I really recommend doing so. The number one reason people come to my channel that I know of and want to look at my content is to try to figure out what is going on with people in destructive cults or high control groups or people who are under undue, you know, influence or coercive persuasion, all these ways we describe this, these destructive, horrible relationships that people get involved in. And this podcast this week is a real tour de force because it is a two-hour interview with a man named Christian Zurko, who lives over in the United Kingdom. He's an American guy, and he has been working for almost as long as I have been alive, getting people out of these kind of groups. And we talk about exactly how he does it, and it is not necessarily how you think it would be done. Um, so I highly recommend checking out that podcast because it's a, it's, it's, it's was put together purposefully for people to watch it and learn how do I do this? Because parents, friends, you know, family, whatever, they, they constantly screw this up. And it strains relationships. It's not a matter of you're screwing it up and look at how wrong you are. The, the, the whole point of me saying this stuff is because I'm trying to help you guys. And, you know, it's not necessarily real obvious how to deal with people who get into these culty situations and, how to, and then how to deal with them because they can be so difficult. They can be trying. So, anyway, that podcast this week is there for you guys, and I hope you will check it out. Uh, okay, and the other thing I wanted to say is that I just want to put in a quick plug for the channel, for, for Patreon. Uh, you know, if you're liking the channel and you think it's, uh, think it's doing good things for you, then consider joining me there, because that's what keeps the channel going. That all being said, let's get on with your questions now. RCK. I've seen a number of stories where the children of Scientologists, like yourself, not only follow their parents' footsteps, but in some cases outdo their parents and join the Sea Org. Now, in the normal world, you would also have kids who question and even defy their parents when it comes to religion. Why do I have to go to church? Politics. Why should I be a Democrat slash Republican like you? Economics. I think socialism is better than capitalism etc. In the normal world, such reactions are seen as growing pains and parents hope their kids will come around. In the world of Scientology, if an adult would voice doubts about Scientology, he or she would face disconnection. What happens to a non-Sea Org teen who would dare question his or her parents' belief in Scientology? Well, I think you're actually going to get the same range or spectrum of actions and reactions that you would get in the normal world because Let's face it, not all parents deal rationally and calmly with their children when they question their religion or their politics or their economics. Uh, parents can get quite upset about this. They can punish their children. They can physically discipline them, mentally, psychologically discipline them in an effort to try to get them to change their mind and comply with what the how the parents see the world. 
This happens all over the United States, happens all over the world, right? Parents are trying to instill values in their children, and sometimes their children are quote-unquote disappointments to them because they engage in the awful crime of independent thinking and don't want to do what their parents want, uh, don't want to believe what their parents believe, don't want to think what their parents think, and this can be very, you know, some parents have a real problem with that and they get um, pretty irate. And this, is, this causes families to uh, even break apart all the time. It's really no different in Scientology, except that it's amped up even more because you are dealing with a cult situation. And, and by that, of course, we mean an extremism of belief. These groups foster and indoctrinate and create that extremism. It's not an accident. So parents of, you know, Scientology parents tend to be pretty hardcore about their beliefs. You will always find exceptions to this, though. And not all Scientology parents will force Scientology on their kids, but a lot of them will, and they'll push pretty hard. And they will also make a lot of unwarranted and undue, um, not just demands, but um, uh, insinuations, or or uh, they will say things about their kids, like my, you know, my kid's a past life Scientologist. I just know, right? Or you know, you you were around before, or you know, they start laying some Scientology cosmology on the kid. You know, my dad hinted at this a little bit when I was growing up about how there were implant stations on Mars, and there were you know things going on in the big wide, you know, galaxy that I couldn't really know a whole lot about. He would, he would sort of tease me with it, not, not in a playful teasing way, but he would sort of drop these, these little truth bombs, you know, quote unquote. And I'd be like, what is that all about? You know, he never mentioned Xenu, never even hinted at body thetans or any of that kind of stuff, because he would always say, well, I can't tell you too much more because you're going to get sick, you know? And I'd be like, Ur. and I guess the answer is I need to go get more Scientology auditing or something. Okay, so so you have parents, Scientology parents, laying this stuff on their kids, and it happens more often than I think I imagined it did when I was a Scientologist. Now that I've seen and heard more ex-Scientology kids talking about how their parents dealt with them, um, I've done some interviews on the show here, specifically Tim and Sylvia DeWall, about how they raised their kid, ended up sending their daughter Larissa off to Scientology disciplinary camp and school and various private schools and institutions and setups that they have to try to deal with troublesome or uh, difficult children. Um, that, I think, I don't even know if they're still doing that now. They might still be running those schools, but... Um, that's something Scientology parents have done is literally ship their kid off to, you know, this sort of um, desert boarding school sort of thing where they're going to get uh, raked over the coals for, you know, a while, sometimes years. Um, so that happens. You know, in my family, uh, my mom just had a fairly, not, not stern, but kind of serious talk with me about it when I raised doubts with her. I said, you know, you guys seem to be spending a lot of money on this, and I, I don't really agree. It seems kind of like it's a crutch for you guys, I said to her. And she, you know, kind of reacted a little bit like, well, okay. But, at this, but then she, you know, I, I think I was uh, 14 or 15 at the time. This was, this was just about within a year of me actually getting involved in Scientology myself. <laughs> Um, but she said to me, 
you know, look, we, uh, you've never wanted for anything as a kid. You know, sure, we haven't had an affluent, opulent, you know, uh, existence. We don't live in the biggest house. We don't drive all the fanciest cars. But you've got food on the table every day. You've got clothes on your back. You're going to school. Everything's fine in your life. So you really don't have any position. My, mom, my mom's basic point was you're in no position whatsoever to question our spending habits or where we spend our money. And, um, and it's really none of your business anyway. So, you know, and, and that pretty much put me in my place. I mean, she was right. So, you know, I kind of okay. You know, and it wasn't it wasn't even mean-spirited. It was just kind of like a very factual adult kind of conversation for my 15-year-old self. And it and it made sense to me and I was like, "Okay, well, I guess I'm going to leave that alone." But my mom had come from a Catholic upbringing. So she had decided very early on in my life that she was not going to enforce religion on me, whether it was Catholicism, you know, they kind of had had lapsed from that by the time I was born. And then they got involved with Scientology, and my mom certainly encouraged and used Scientology on me. Both my parents did as a kid. But they, my mom was determined that it wasn't going to be forced on me. And that's kind of a unique thing in, the, in these high control groups for parents to think that way about, you know, passing it on to their kids. Most parents get more rigorous about it, and they start using Scientology ethics and even justice, and they, they do these things called conditions formulas, or they punish their kids, or they give them a real hard time, you know, and, and uh, that's, you know, that of course has various, depending on the kid, sometimes the kids comply and kowtow to the pressure and, and go along, other times the kids rebel even harder, and it just gets worse and worse. So. That's a, kind of a broad description of, of my, you know, of, of how I've seen and encountered this, and I hope that that gives you some, some more information about uh, how, how kids are dealt with. CN. The Scientology mission in my middle-sized city used to be located in an area that is quickly gentrifying. It has since moved to a not-so-pleasant area of town. I also noticed that their hours changed from the regular 9 to 5 times to only being open in the evenings for a few hours, four times a week. Is this becoming a common occurrence at mission locations around the country or world? Who decides on mission locations and times? The people that run that individual location or the entire organization? Okay, Scientology missions are the lowest level service organizations that exist within the world of Scientology's hierarchy of uh, organizations. I, I put together a video about this explaining it all called Scientology's Organizational Madness, and it shows the whole chart of, of, of organizations and structures. Um, so missions are independently owned. They used to be called franchises. An individual Scientologist buys the right from the church to, to use the trademarks and service marks of Dianetics and Scientology to deliver low-level services and auditing services up to the level of clear. Uh, the training services they can offer are basic-level services, not advanced auditor training classes, but basic services, uh, what we call the, the Scientology uh, life improvement courses and uh, low-level, uh, you know, academy-level major services. So, uh, missions are basically supposed to be Scientology's spearhead into society. And Hubbard had the idea that they would be selling tons of books, getting lots and lots of Scientology out into the community, into the area, doing community events, stuff like that, and bringing people in and giving them the basic Scientology stuff 
doing some auditing, and then sending them up to the lo local uh, class five organization, which is the city level churches that we talk about so often, the orgs, so to speak, the organizations. So, mission, so every organization is supposed to have 10 or more missions around it acting as feeder lines, but this has never really been something that has successfully been implemented in any org mission relationship that I've ever seen in all the years of Scientology. Missions would generally tend to hold on to people for as long as they could, to milk them for as much money as they could, and then send them on straight to a Sea Org upper-level church like the ones in LA or in Clearwater and get big commissions from those Sea Org churches instead just bypass the city-level orgs. So the missions and the orgs tended to be more in competition than they tended to work together. Now, with Scientology's, you know, uh, PR value being negative and mission holders having such a hard time getting any Scientologists to staff their their little missions and then do the work necessary because it's a lot of hard work to get uh, something propagated that way. You've got to be out there in people's faces, selling books, giving out tickets to movies and doing seminars and workshops and all kinds of stuff. I mean, it's a lot of, if you really want to do it, it can be done. Even despite the negative PR, there could be successful missions out there but they got to get over that hump, and none of them really are able to do that because Hubbard's policies are crap. They don't get really any, hardly any backup from the church management or, or international Scientology. Missions are very much fend-for-yourself kind of activities. And this is why the hours can be so random. They're set by the mission holder who bought the, the rights to deliver the services, he's not under any particular obligation to international Scientology as to what hours he's going to be open, where he needs to be located. You know, as long as it presents a, you know, a decent positive image of Scientology, they don't really care. But they obviously would want the missions open all the times, but they can't like order them around the same way they can with the orgs. It's a bit of a different management relationship. Missions are more in the in the realm of getting advice from management on a weekly basis rather than the kind of orders that come down to the orgs. Um, missions generally so are, are generally left alone for the most part. And they pay a, like you know a certain percentage of their uh, income every week goes up as a tithing or something, and that's kind of how the that's the exchange that Scientology International gets from these missions. But they tend to be small struggling operations with one or two or three staff maybe, you know, just volunteering really because they're not really making any money, and uh, and they don't get past that. They don't ever get you know above that that hump point. So. That's why you see missions closing all the time. Uh, hardly any of them even open anymore. It's really hardly a thing. And this has been one of the biggest reasons, and this goes all the way back to the 80s and this huge debacle where Hubbard and David Miscavige and International Scientology Sea Org Management really, really did a number and came down hard on what were very successful missions that were operating through the 1970s and early 80s, and they just took them apart and raided them and took all their money out of their bank accounts. I mean, it was just a flat-out purge, you know, and they just took all the money and ran. So that destroyed most of the successful missions back then, and they have never recovered a successful mission network ever since. And David Miscavige seems completely uninterested in anything having to do with that topic. 
Kevin Zay. I know you're a Star Wars fan. What are your thoughts on The Mandalorian? Do you think Moff Gideon will turn out to be a Sith Lord? Thanks for the question, Kevin. I love Star Wars. And uh, as, as you know, you might be able to tell from some of the paraphernalia around here. Uh, anyway, yeah, I have been loving The Mandalorian. I have not made, a, um, been shy about the fact that I have not been a fan of the latest trilogy, especially the, the, the second one. Uh, in that trilogy, the Ryan Johnson movie was just a total disaster. The last one was a Band-Aid on top of that, but it really barely, you know, finished off the whole thing. It was, it was okay, but it wasn't really that great. And overall, very disappointing. So, so imagine my joy at The Mandalorian, right, which is written and produced by Jon Favreau, who's the same guy who brought us the Iron Man, first Iron Man movie, and, and he's just a great, great filmmaker, and he really understands what Star Wars is at its core, and he didn't try to mess with the formula like Johnson did, and... Um, and he and he's doing it right. He's laying out an action adventure story in a serialized version with an interesting main character who's a badass. And then he's got this little baby Yoda, right? Which is not Yoda. We know it's not Yoda. But what else are you going to call it? We don't even know what that race or species of creatures is called. They're just little Yodas. And so they've got this wonderful twist with this little baby Yoda. And um, and it's and it harkens back to old Japanese cinema, just like a lot of Star Wars does, and um, and it and it brings life into it, and it and it puts enough sci-fi and tech there and spaceship stuff that it kind of kind of keeps it interesting and, and visually exciting. And there are fight sequences, and it's not too deep and it's not too serious. It's just kind of fun. It's entertaining. It's diversion. And that's what Star Wars always should be. It doesn't, it's not, you know, Star Wars doesn't lend itself to good social, big, huge social commentary or deep issues because that's not what it is based on or what it's ever been about. And that was my biggest problem with going into it. I, you know, people know that I am very socially conscious and I push social issues on my channel here all the time. So it's not like I don't support social issues or social justice and in, you know, minority rights and things like that. But but that stuff is misplaced in Star Wars, and at least from my point of view. And I know, you know, people have differing views on this, but these are my views, and you asked about them. So, um, so I think The Mandalorian is a return to core Star Wars values and in a brilliant, wonderful way. And, um, and I don't think it really needs a whole lot more analysis than that. It's just fun to watch. I have enjoyed watching um, some of the actors come on there, you know, Carl Weathers and uh, some of the other folks. Some of the um, cameos, the cameos you don't even know because they're behind, you know, masks and stuff. That's been fun. And, uh, I mean, seeing Bill Burr in Star Wars, that was awesome, you know, because <laughs> I kind of like watching him. So I've had a great time with it. As far as my conjecture about Moth, uh, Moff Gideon, uh, oh boy, I just have big question marks all over that, because at the, at the final episode of the finale in season one, he, he comes out with this, what's called a dark saber. It's like this lightsaber, but it's dark, and... I, you know, you can't help but wonder what kind of Sith connotation that has. 
you know, because I don't know what else to to bring that in. I don't know. Maybe they're going to create some other, you know, paradigm for for baddies in the Star Wars universe than just Sith-connected bad guys. And wouldn't that be interesting? So I'm, I'm not sure where they're going with it. But I love the actor who plays Moff Gideon. I don't remember his name right now. Um, but he was in Breaking Bad. Brilliant actor. And I think that um, Favreau and company are really bringing everything to the four with The Mandalorian, and I can't wait for the second season. Ian R. From my understanding, Scientology auditing requires the use of an e-meter. This e-meter utilizes two cylindrical electrical conductors that are held in the hands of the pre-clear during an auditing session. What if the pre-clear is handicapped and is missing a hand or an arm? Does this mean they are unable to be audited? Or are there some kind of optional attachments to the e-meter that are handicapped accessible? If not, would this person be disqualified from becoming a Scientologist, or can they become a Scientologist but are simply disqualified from participating in any auditing? Okay, thanks for the question, Ian. And actually, it's pretty simple. There are other alternative ways that have been come up with over the years to deal with people who cannot grip two cans in their hands, okay? That's their, originally the cans, the electrodes that are used on an emitter were soup cans. I mean, that's the level of, of you know, uh, complexity involved with these electrodes that you hold in your hands. And so what they've come up with over the years for people who have arthritic hands or are handicapped or in some way impaired from being able to hold those electrodes is they have wrist guards. You can literally take some metal and fashion it into something that you could wrap around a person's wrists and sort of use Velcro straps to clamp, to, to get them on there. And then you could use alligator clips to uh, pinch onto the metal and get a circuit going that way, right? All that's required in order for an emitter to work on someone is that they be connected in such a way that an electric circuit is created, that the, the electrical signal can go over the skin of the person. It does not pierce into their body. It's not a strong enough electrical flow to do anything like that. It just goes over the surface of the skin. And anything that will accomplish that will work. So you can have, say, a person is missing a hand. They have one hand that they can use. Well, they would be audited using the same uh, two-can deal that is used with um, a solo auditor. I realized I've got a couple cans and I can just show them to you instead of sitting there making air signs. So um, if you have, these are two emitter electrode cans and the electrodes plug in here at the top. There are dividers, there are plastic dividers that go into these cans which will hold them together. And when you are doing solo auditing on the OT levels, or again, if you are being audited where you only had one hand available, you would hold them like this. The dividers, which I don't have with the emitter that I have here, would go into here and separate, keep the cans separated from each other so they don't touch. There'd be a little gap there. And you would hold them in your hands like this, and therefore the signal would go, the, the circuit would go in one can over your skin and back into the other can. And this would create a circuit and you could be audited this way. There would be some minor adjustments that would be made on the meter in terms of its tone arm reading and stuff, but you could do it. Now, if you didn't have any hands, you could take these cans and you could put them under, you not, not without the shirt, you know, you'd have to get skin contact, but you could put them under your armpits. 
You could also get flat sheets of tin or metal like this. And I think it's um, tin coated copper, I think, is, I think is what this is. I'd have to look it up. But you could get flat things and you could put the bo your feet, the, the bottom of your feet on them. And that could create a circuit, right? And you wouldn't, again, you'd have trouble setting certain sensitivities and, and certain uh, uh, things, dials on the e-meter, but you could make it work, is my point. And that is how it is done in Scientology when somebody comes in who's got that problem. They'll go to all kinds of lengths to get the person audited on the meter because the vast majority of Scientology auditing is done using an e-meter and you will never go up to full OT or even clear without an e-meter. Preacher 1138, is there any single thing that a Sea Org member can do that would just get them thrown out of the Church of Scientology immediately? Or will the Church always try to rehabilitate the person first? And lastly, can you guess where the 1138 in my YouTube handle comes from? Yes, there are quite a few things you could do actually that would just get you kicked right out of the church right away. Um, physically assaulting or going after David Miscavige or a very senior executive in some kind of a psychotic rage or something would definitely, definitely get you kicked out of the church pretty quickly. Um, but the number one thing we know for sure will get you kicked out is if you threaten suicide, uh, like immediately, and you are not kidding around about it. If you start talking about how you want to kill yourself and you need to leave right now and you actually even make an attempt at it, like you have more than just words to say, uh, they will get rid of you very quickly. I've never seen anyone get rid of faster than a suicide threat. Right, especially when there was an actual attempt made at the same time. And I don't say that to be callous. I mean, that's, that's, how it, that's, that's one of the things you do. I'm not saying this to try to you know, suggest that somebody do that. Uh, but you ask the question, and that's the thing that I have seen. Like, I've seen almost same day, like next day, I've seen people get out of the Sea Org like within a day or two of that happening um, because they are terrified of you know, somebody killing themselves on one of their bases. That would be like the worst possible PR nightmare they feel they could possibly ever go through. Um, if you were to start chanting OT materials, that would get people pretty upset pretty fast. They would definitely lock you up as quickly as they could. And, and if you just kept doing it, they'd want to get you get you offloaded as quickly as possible. Um, Stuff like that, you know, if you just, if you submitted a written resignation from the church, I hereby resign from Scientology, I'm no longer Scientologist, I want out of here right now, right, and you literally put that in writing, I mean, you'd probably just walk away at that point, there wouldn't really be any reason to stay <laughs> on your part, but they'll, they'll get rid of you pretty quick if you were to do something like that too, because that's a public disavowal of Scientology, which means it's a high crime within their justice codes, but it also is a pretty clear indication that you're just kind of done and, uh, and they're going to they're gonna show you the door. Oh, and by the way, I think the 1138 in your name probably comes from THX 1138, George Lucas's first film, and also the name of one of the uh, characters from Empire Strikes Back, the uh, robot bounty hunter THX 1138. It is time for Flash Answers. Bobby Simone, 79. 
Chris, I'm sure you have plenty of people in mind that you would love to talk with for 2020, but who is the one person that you would really love to interview? I don't have any idea how I could possibly arrange this, but if I could get Neil deGrasse Tyson on my show, that'd be amazing. I'd be, I'd be quite happy if I could pull off something like that. I would also love to talk with Robert Sapolsky. And that might be one I could actually work on getting this year. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to see if I can do something with that. And I'm also more than a little curious about who you guys might want to see on my channel. So actually, if you could put that in the comment section, your ideas of who you'd like to see me interview, I'd love to know what you guys think. Joy George. Who sets the prices of Scientology courses? Do the prices change? And now that recruitment is much lower these days, do they offer sales or discounts? Prices are set for all Scientology services by International Scientology Finance. There are, uh, there's calculations and things they do and figure things out according to directions from Hubbard and now David Miscavige, of course. And the prices change. Yes, they go up and down. Um, and you asked, do they do sales or discounts? Yeah, all the time. They have discounts. They have scholarships. They have sales. They, they, yeah, absolutely. Tyler Simmons. Have you seen memes that say liberalism is a mental disease? The more I see that quip, the more I appreciate liberalism. I think liberalism is a beautiful ideology. The country needs more real liberalism. Without liberalism, society stagnates and could possibly regress back into the dark ages. I don't understand why people hate innovation and creativity. Conservatism is necessary for the early stages, but as society evolves and becomes more advanced, Conservatism becomes unnecessary and we outgrow it. I don't understand why people don't want society to evolve with science and technology. What is your take on this? Okay, well, this is a potentially gigantic, huge podcast long topic, which I will reduce down to this simplicity. Liberalism and conservatism are opposite ends of a philosophical spectrum in the same way that yin and yang exist as opposite ends, black and white, good and bad. We have these opposites within all of us. All of us are on a spectrum of some kind in regards to how we view the world from a, from a dynamic, creative, um, forward-thinking, progressive way versus a conservative holding on to values and ideas from the past that are important and that create our present and could contribute constructively to our future, that's a conservative angle. And there's nothing stagnant or awful or horrible about it. And conservatism actually is not about the beginning of a society because conservatism is all about returning back to old school values or retaining and holding on to traditional values. So you need a tradition to fall back on for conservatism to have any real meaning or, or significance. So it's the constant push and pull between the forward advance of society through progressive changes and the holding on to what works and keeping things going and set up and, and operating in a, in a functional you know, way and the push-pull between these things is kind of the, the fight I see as, as between liberalism and conservatism. So they're both necessary, and we're never going to be in a condition or state where we don't have both of these things pushing and pulling on us and on our society. 
So um, I think anybody who is looking at this from a from a shorter point of view might be looking at it as a battle to be won or a fight to you know to ha attain some kind of victory over or conquest over one side or the other, but. It doesn't really work that way. They, these are just two sides of a coin that are always going to exist and we're always going to be struggling with. And, um, and it's really, you know, these kind of struggles that, that, that mark the forward or backwards, you know, advance or regression of a society or culture as it progresses through history. So I, I find the whole thing actually pretty fascinating. And, I, and the longer I've spent thinking about this stuff and talking about it and looking at it, the more I've come to realize that, you know, the, um, the, the war aspect of this is, is sort of a shallow, you know, it's a uh, view of it, right? And I think we gain more if we see the necessity of both sides of this equation and look at how both sides contribute to, you know, where we are and where we're going. And that's, uh, that's how I look at it, or at least that's how I'm trying to look at it these days. Okay, everybody, thank you very much for coming along and joining me on my ride this week for uh, answers to your questions. I hope that the answers were satisfactory, entertaining, and interesting. And uh, please keep them coming. As I said, send them to askchrisshelton at gmail.com. Any questions, comments, or uh, feedback on the show itself or anything like that, you can, of course, leave that in the comments section. Uh, questions, like I said, eh, maybe I'll get to them. Comments, feedback, I always appreciate looking at that stuff. All right, guys, talk to you later. Bye-bye.